My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Woodbury. Welcome once again to Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. This is the final episode of the season. I'm your host, Jason Woodbury, and I'm joined by Aquarium Drunkard founder and executive producer of the podcast, Justin Gage. Justin, how are you doing? I'm good. Man, we made it. Here we are. We made it. <laughs> 20, 2020 was weird, and we were like, well, boy, that's the weirdest year. And then 2021 was maybe weirder in a uh, lot of ways. I, I think so. Time seemed to have collapsed into itself. And uh, <laughs> yeah, somehow we're, we're at the end of the year. We're at the end of the year and at the end of a season of, of transmissions that has been, uh, well, we started the season in January and we've done an episode every week until then. This week on the show is Steve Berlin of Los Lobos. Um, our Patreon supporters have had access to this episode uh, for the last couple of weeks, but now it's going to be in the general feed and he was a great guy to talk to. Their new record is called Native Sons and it's all la covers covers of uh artists associated with la when when i told you i was going to have him on you said are you going to ask him about paul simon that's and, right uh, spo- spoiler alert i did ask him about paul simon so <laughs> listeners be, be prepared he has he has some thoughts he was really cool about it too like kind of a no bullshit sort of like look I would say all of this directly to Paul's face were I given the opportunity. So I'm yeah, feeling... Uh, it's, it, it's a great story, and I'm, I'm glad you, you asked him about that. I'm excited to hear how he, uh, how he addresses that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was great. I mean, Steve's one of these guys. He's, he's, he's been around so long, especially, you know, kind of arriving on the cowpunk scene and playing with all sorts of groups like... The blasters and x and 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 then obviously joining up with los lobos it's you know these are the um i guess in a way i feel like i always associate this kind of stuff as like kind of a part of the aquarium drunkard like dna you know right. that sort of like probably uh probably cross paths with dwight yokum you know one of our one of our great white whales as far as he an is a sacred who we cow actually, indeed who, who we did have an interview with a couple a couple um years ago and we talked about this exact same thing so the sort of the la cross-pollination between roots music and punk and indie rock and um yeah it was really great to have have steve on the show and to wrap up this 2021 season with this talk um Man, it's been it's been a pretty wild year, that's yeah. for sure. I mean, you know, one of the unifying themes of this podcast that I think you've done an exemplary just uh, I've been really impressed by the, just the fact that it's all tied together um by storytellers no matter the creative discipline. Um what are just yeah. a few that stand out to you? Here here we are at the end of the season. Man, well, the first one that comes to mind of course was you know, kind of speaking of uh, great white whales, or is that a real <laughs> great white whale? The I great guess. white um, whale. 
Jim Jim Jarmish having Jim Jarmish on the podcast this year was was mind blowing. We had I don't want to do too much inside baseball, but we had thrown the idea out a, a handful of times. Yes. You know? Um. Because anytime you you do have somebody from his camp in your inbox, you you throw the idea out there, and it it never came together until this year. But um, you know I I get. I get excited about these podcasts and I get um I get like antsy to do them, but I don't normally get nervous. Uh however with Jim Jarmish I was totally nervous and it was one of those things where it didn't uh I didn't need to be. He was so He was game fantastic to hang out and talk and it was one of our loosest chats of the year, and that's saying something because we've really tried to make sure that these are, you know, fun. Uh, in entertaining and not particularly rigid kinds of interviews, so he was he was definitely one that that sticks out. How about how um, about Angel Badawid? How about that one? Oh man, Angel Badawid was, was such an incredible one, and that's I would say that's probably the episode that I've gotten the most feedback about from people. People were really really kind and sent us great. Uh, emails letting letting me know how much that episode meant to them or how much they enjoyed listening to it she was truly i mean a great great guest and again one of those talks where it's like all my notes just sort of went out the window you know because she just wanted to to just roll nico case was that way too where she was just like uh, immediately it was like get in the car we're taking off you know so that was like that was a great one, but but yeah, the episode with Angel was really really tremendous. I loved. We kicked off the uh, the season with the uh, with Nels Klein, and he's been on a handful of times. Yeah. But he was also just like it was just such a fun, um, effortless conversation about about um, you know a truly pretty staggering creative practice uh, outside of outside of Wilco and then of course within Wilco. So that was like that was a lot of fun. But but the truth is like I I like <laughs> like every episode this season. I've had so much fun making the show and having great guests join us and really great listeners uh chime in with with their thoughts and their suggestions and yeah, and the feedback's been, I feel, been great. I'm glad that's coming through. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a it's the sort of thing where it's like I think that for so many people when you're in th- when you're making something like this, especially when it's like week in and week out, it, it, you you have to sort of just like keep keep moving, you know? But yeah. the cool thing that happens is because of the way the podcast medium works, I'll get emails from people uh talking about an episode that we aired you know, seven months ago, or in some cases, a few years ago. So it's cool to know that this stuff has a longer uh, shelf, shelf life, life than like yeah. than, than so much, so much. Like I hate the I hate the term content, and I know we try to avoid using it. You know, but like I feel like what we're doing is is hopefully a little bit more than easily and easily digestible and easily discardable internet content and i feel like the i feel like that the show has really evolved in a way that um these conversations have have some staying power which makes me feel like we're doing something all right on this on this side of things yeah and this is this is a good reminder for the listeners that 
all of these are archived going back uh, years now. So feel free to, yeah, to dig right. in I mean, during the hiatus. Man, we, we yeah, and, and, and so for listeners who, who might be worried, there is plenty to check out, um, but it won't be very long of a hiatus. We'll be back in January. 2022 with with more stuff but um in the in the meantime yeah go back there are some there's some great ones we had probably the the first time I, I i've loved doing the podcast from the beginning but there was one interview from 2017 where you and i recorded it with daniel lenoir in his studio and um that's one I would recommend people go back and check out. They won't hear it, but I can't explain how nervous I was setting up my <laughs> rinky-dink microphone setup in front of Daniel and Wah. You know what I mean? Like in that's not something console. that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I really wanted to be like, "Are you sure? Are you sure you don't want to record it, Daniel? Just, just since we're here, you know." But um, that's a great one, and there are some some really fun conversations. Lots of stuff that um, is is you know, you and I rapping about things. And so that's something that I know we're going to integrate more into the next season. And, uh, and yeah, man, I'm, uh, it's really great to have you here as we close this one out, as we, we ease into the final, uh, 2021 episode of transmissions with Steve Berlin from Los Lobos. Um, dude, it's been a, it's been a real fun ride. It's been a great ride and lots coming up in 2022. Wow. It's, it's crazy to say that, but <laughs> 2022. <It> is- <laughs> yeah. It's 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 nuts to think about because, uh-huh. uh, like you said, time has collapsed in on itself. So, um, in this weird uh, collapsed time timeline, uh, we're so glad that you're you're tuning into transmissions and that folks are able to to check out what we're doing. There's no shortage of things to pay attention to on the internet, and uh, it really has been uh, humbling and, and a real honor that people have chosen to spend time listening to this this program. And uh, we really appreciate it. So, yeah, I guess without further further ado, I guess we should we should get into this one after uh, after a brief word from our sponsors. Does that sound good? Sounds great. Thanks, brother. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Check them out at BetterHelp.com/AquariumDrunkard. Uh, the best way to think about therapy is through uh, the idea of thinking about maintenance. We get our cars tuned up to prevent bigger issues down the road. We get annual checkups at the doctor and go to the gym to maintain our physical wellness. We do chores regularly to avoid a giant mess of a house and gross bugs. Going to therapy is is like this. It's routine maintenance for your mental and emotional wellness, and it helps prevent bigger issues down the line. Going to therapy does not mean something's wrong with you. It means you're investing uh, in yourself to keep your mind healthy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Why invest in everything else and not your mind? This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Aquarium Drunkard listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash aquarium drunkard that's b-e-t-t-e-r-h-e-l-p dot com slash aquarium drunkard we thank better help for sponsoring the show how you doing man sorry 
No, no apologies necessary. How are you? I'm good. Looks like I got you maybe in a hotel room. Yeah, yeah, we're uh, tonight's our big uh, LA show. Yeah, so, well, uh, I appreciate I you. I appreciate you squeezing this in so that uh, we we could talk a little bit before before the gig. Uh, how, have you played some some gigs previous to this since the pandemic, or uh, is this one of the idea. first big ones? You've been playing a lot, yeah. Well, I wouldn't say a lot. Uh, this is probably our well, sir. We st- really started on August first, so this is like our probably tenth or fifteenth show since August first. First, yeah. Um, but there were you know a few here and there before that. But yeah, we've been pretty you know hitting it pretty hard since since August first. How how have the shows how have the shows felt? Have they felt especially especially good after a long time not being able to do it? Yeah, it's it's definitely good. Um, you know, obviously with the undercurrent of uh, dread. Yeah, um, <laughs> that so, is that is all things now. Yeah, you know, so it's uh, I can't say it's uh, carefree on either our end or or the audiences. Sure, but I would say people seem to be enjoying themselves greatly. Um, uh, you know, it certainly feels great to us to be back at it and playing in front of people again. You know, it's kind of really our job. Yeah. So uh, I would say all things equal, it's 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 pretty great. But again, with a, you know, I mean, I can't even begin to tell you how many friends who are in the, you know, just started and shut down, like, you know, almost immediately for one reason or another. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's such a, it's such a rough time right now. There's so much... Uh, so much to consider at all at all times. I'll say this though: having the new record has been has been helpful because this is a really fun album to listen to at a time when things haven't been fun, you know, as much yeah. as 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 normal. Uh, uh, did, it's kind of the idea, you know. I mean, I, I couldn't tell you that you know a year and a half ago when we started, we thought we'd be you know celebrating the hopeful end of the pandemic, but. Um, yeah, I mean, the, I, it, we wanted it to be kind of a, a party record, you know, like the ones that we kind of grew up on. Yeah. Where you just you know, slap it on and forget about it, and people are enjoying themselves. So um, that's the that was the one of the ideas. <laughs> there are a number of them. But, you know, once we got into it, it's like, boy, it'd be cool if this was just one of those records you just, you know, put on and rock. Yeah. Know? Well, I mean, were you guys, you, you mentioned that you started working on it well before the pandemic um but what was the uh, uh did did you have to do some stuff remotely over the last year and a half or whatever or was it mostly all wrapped up uh i wish i could tell you that the guys in my band were techn- technologically adept enough to do anything <laughs> remotely but yeah they get boiled just trying to you know turn their phones on so um <laughs> yeah we tried i i wish i would have captured them trying to do zoom meetings it was like <laughs> literally like you know larry david could not have scripted it funnier like you know, just like, like they could not figure out any part and i say that with love i mean they're just not that's not who they are they're just not you know they all you know the, the, the phones still have the you know the you know the original ring and stuff like that so it's like you know that's the deuce that's how they are so no there was never going to be you know once early on there was never going to be anything remote Anything, no remote shows, no remote <laughs> recording. You know, we have to do it uh, Cro-Magnon style. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. You know, we had we had the producer John Leckie here on the podcast. Yeah. Good friend of mine. Yeah. Uh, what a tremendous dude, full of incredible stories. But yeah, he was talking yeah. about working with you guys and about how often 
you know, like, uh, the guys would finish takes and stuff, and he'd be like, you want to come in the control room? And they were like, do do we need to? Like, I don't, no, I'm going to take off if that's cool. Like, I'm done. I think I'm done, you know? Which I thought was so, so cool. But the record, it does have, like, a really naturalistic feel, and obviously covers are a huge part of the Los Lobos sort of story, you know? So many people were introduced to you guys through La Bamba or... I mean, I remember I discovered the song I Got Loaded through Los Lobos, you know, and then went back and listened to the original and all that stuff. But on Native Sons, were you guys all bringing songs to the table? How did the, how did the, how did the track list get assembled exactly? Um, well, we, uh, we started with not much of a map other than, you know, songs for, by, through, you know, connected to L.A. So it's a very... yeah extremely loose definition of what constitutes that thing you know there was no no real bar per se as long you know obviously we weren't going to do you know a yardbird song but right yeah new york but, state uh, of mind or whatever yeah, yeah Billy Joel probably was out um <laughs> but uh aside from that it was kind of wide open but we did it more or less i mean it's not like we really talked about it all that much but we knew that we that it was gonna there were like four the four horsemen the four four artists that we had to say effectively thank you we would not be here without you would be the blasters certainly yeah uh, the midnighters certainly uh, lalo guerrero certainly and war yeah i mean was, those are effectively speaking you know that that's most of our dna in one respect or another right there so we knew that those we're going to do a song by each one of those artists so that's four and then everybody brought at least one. I mean, uh, Conrad was, he's the band's biggest Beach Boys fan, so he brought, Sail. he wanted to do more. But Sail on Sailor, you know, that was, he, he was pretty insistent about that. Uh, Dave being the biggest Buffalo Springfield and Neil Young fan wanted to do Bluebird and then for what it's worth, uh, Louis brought uh, the Jackson Brown song. Um, you know, Caesar had uh, the, the Midnighter song and then the Willie Bobo song. So. Everybody kind of, and I brought the the Percy Mayfield song. So nice. you know, like once once the ice was effectively broken, everybody brought their own. And then it would, after that, it was kind of like filling in. You know, like it was sort of like, well, what else could we do that, that would be outside of this this parameter? So that's more or less how it got done. But I will be honest with you that you know, so we were doing it during the pandemic, and it was very you know, stop start stop start. It was like three months there where we didn't do anything. Uh, and, you know, normally when we make a record, you know, I kind of have a running list or, a spread, you know, actually a spreadsheet where I have all the songs and, like, what's left to do, like, what's undone, like, if there's any ideas that we didn't try yet, any of that kind of stuff. And whatever reason, just because of the nature of it, because also we didn't really know if there was a finish line. I mean, like, we didn't know yeah. there's going to be a music business left, to, you know, to, to <laughs> yeah. do anything with at the other end of this. Right. Any business, so maybe. Like, yeah, I just kind of like let go of that. I just like I try to stay in the moment, like just you know work on a song and then mm-hmm. not be hyper conscious of the overall picture, like I would normally do. And certainly on any record I produce, it's hyper focused on like the big picture. But this one, I was like, you know, we'll just do it, and then you know we'll we'll figure it out. You know, like at some point I'll I'll do that, and then we'll see where we're at. And so by the time I actually sat down and did that, it was September, and much to my last September, much to my I was literally knocked out of my chair that we had 14 songs without even thinking about it. Yeah. It was just, uh, or 13, I'd rather, but it was just like, how the hell do we get 13 songs? We were just like, 
it just happened somehow. So it was, uh, it was relatively painless. I mean, it was just like, Hey, let's work on this. Oh, let's work on this. You know, so it wasn't like, you know, there was hardly anything resembling a, um, you know, a real plan, uh, yeah. and or like a real, like, you know, deep focus, like, Hey, we're going to get, you know, we're going to grind this thing out. Um, it was really just, you know, we get together for three or four days, a, you know, a, a month hang out. I, unfortunately for me, you know, no big, real big deal, but I don't live in LA. So I, I live in Southwest Washington. So I'd have to yeah. quarantine for, you know, whatever it was, seven, 10 days, 10 days at first, then five days every time I went home. So that was, that kind of sucked, but, right. uh, but you know, every, but we, you know, it was just a matter of like making sure everybody felt safe. So we would, we had a nurse come and test us before every session. Yeah. Um, everybody agreed that we weren't going to go. I mean, not there was anywhere to go, but you know, like we tried to stay as, as much as you could over that amount of time in a bubble, you know, the kids weren't in school, the, you know, the, the guys all have grandkids at home, most of them. Yeah. So, you know, they weren't in school. So it was, you know, it, like safety first, but at the same time we were, we actually did have a, you know, a vague plan and we did have some fun because it was fun to get back in the studio and make music together. Yeah. Well, you know, it's like, despite the fact that you're pulling from so many sources, you know, from Jackson Brown to Lalo Guerrero, you know, we're talking covering some ground, you know, uh, yeah. it really does feel like a, like a cohesive LP, you know, it feels like a whole album. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like a, the way, but that's sort of this weird thing that happens with you guys where it sort of always works that way. It can't help but just sound like Los Lobos doing that. You know, yeah. it's, a, it's, it's a pretty cool, it's a pretty cool thing. But going back, you'll hear great variety in the discography. You know what I mean? Very experimental yeah. approaches. It somehow always sounds like you guys. I don't know how a band does that or does so without that getting it it doesn't feel boring, you know. That's a weird. That's a that's a that's a cool and unique accomplishment. I, I it must be a testament to, I guess. What would you attribute that to? Your 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 interpersonal vibe with each other. Uh, yes, um, you know we have a a pretty effective filter as far as like what gets out. You know, we, yeah. We tend to. That's a good call. To, uh, <laughs> we drown the the you know the babies before they grow <laughs> up. Sometimes. Sure. Yeah. Uh, when necessary. <laughs> yeah. When necessary. Uh, uh, you know, I guess that's the sound we make. It's all I could say. You know, it, yeah. it's um, it's not really anything we've ever thought about or you know, like spent any you know mental energy on trying to figure out why it does that. You know, it's just like this is. You know, I'll, I'll use this only as the big paradigm, but, you know, any whatever the Grateful Dead play, you know, it's the Grateful Dead right away. You know, you're, For you know sure. no matter what, it's, like, it's that that sound. They, they can't help it just like we can't help it. So it's like, yeah, I don't know, it's more or less built in. Um, you know, we've had to do some shows lately, minus a member. Uh, Dave was out for a little while and Caesar comes and goes sometimes. So, you know, whenever those shows happen, it's, it's fascinating because you actually get to, to sort of like it, you, it's becomes more like a laboratory. <laughs> you know, you sort of like, Oh, that sounds and feels completely different. And you know, like, right. of course, well, that, that guy's not there. You know, it's just, it is really, really unusual how the, uh, the jigsaw puzzle more or less assembles itself. Yeah. So, so these songs, they're all loosely centered around the sort of concept of LA. It's an LA record, yeah. you know, from yeah. one of this, you know, one of the sort of, 
the most uh, define uh, the most identifiable you know East LA bands you know uh when when did you actually arrive in in California you were you were born in Philadelphia is that right yeah. I came to LA in uh, 75 what brought you so, out there um I was uh so in Philly I was playing with the uh, there's a band called the Soul Survivors who had a big hit in the 60s called the uh, Stress Way to Your Heart mm. uh and the band stayed together. Um, the, the two brothers, who were the singers in the band, they played around Philly, and they had a they had a, a good young younger band than them, who were all friends of mine. And they became very very really really good, like a good rhythm section. Like they could do anything, they could play anything. Uh, and they were you know like I would just sit in with them or hang out with them. They were they were my pals, but I was never in the Soul Survivors. I was never you know I was just like around because mm-hmm. they had a, their own thing and they didn't need it you know none of my skills suited what they did but i would just hang around with those guys and they all decided to move to la in 74 and uh within relatively short amount of time after arriving they all they got it they were backing up billy preston and then they got the gig backing up greg allman and they were like they said to me like you got to come out here it's like you know, it's, it's ridiculous. You know, it's at that point, they thought everything was super easy because people heard them and flipped out and hired them. Yeah. So I moved out Christmas 75. Like I arrived literally like Christmas day, 1975, somewhere around there. And then within two weeks of my arrival, they lost both gigs. That was when uh, Billy had some like, you know, both in under really weird circumstances, Billy had some weird, like uh, criminal thing that he was involved with and he, yeah. had to, he had to vacate the state of California immediately. And then that was when Greg was with Cher and he would like routinely like kind of disappear and it'd be like tabloid news, like, you know, Greg disappears again. So right. that was, that was when he was doing that shit. So not the know. most stable set of dudes to hitch your wagon no, to. No, but you know, I was here and, or, you know, like, yeah, I'm here. Uh, <laughs> and we decided to, uh, put a band together like just us and then we did and we got signed to uh casablanca records of all things which was kind of a a movie unto itself yeah uh made a record and uh so this would be 78 uh ish and record did nothing um and then like kind of right around that while that was sort of happening and the you know like we didn't really know like we didn't really tour very much if at all so the band kind of that band was more or less falling apart as the record was being finished, uh, the drummer got hired by uh, Barry White, mm. and so he left. And then uh, the the producer of the record hired, you know, we we actually hired Richie Hayward from Little Feet, which was amazing. And then the producer of the record decided that he didn't like Richie's feel. Go figure. Uh, so it was just like a lot of, you know, we, I got to experience a lot of record industry bullshit in like one giant right away. Uh, yeah, one, welcome one minute. One mega dose with you know my very first record. It was all like I got to capture. I got to see all of the stupidity that there was to be seen. Basically, making a record. Welcome to but LA. I became, yeah, I became aware of and I became friends with people that were on the periphery of this the scene that was developing. You know, in in Hollywood, I was living in Venice, and I just sort of like you know like radio static. You know, I hear about this thing. I hear about this. You know, like hey, there's this thing. You know, the mask and all the shit that was happening in LA and you know, I'm naturally curious. And, uh, so I just sort of like, you know, 
kind of like hung around. And then because I was one of the few proficient sax players on the scene, I ended up playing with like everybody <laughs> more or less. Yeah. You know? Uh, so, you know, I kind of like, I, I, I entered on the, the periphery and I, and in short order, I was in the middle of it. So that was, that's kind of where I, you know, that's how I got noticed by the blasters, the plugs, the flesh eaters, you know, like all the people that I ended up yeah. playing with. And then through them, through the blasters, I met the guys in Los Lobos and then, you know, whatever, 40 some years later. Yeah. I said, getting ready to go to the Greek theater where we're headlining. So, <laughs> What's a, a cool story. so how old were you when you first came out? 19. 19, man. So you're, you're 19 years old and you're just sort of in what, what, uh, when you, when you started hearing word about the mask and this sort of thing that was happening where all these, you know, punk bands were also sort of drawing from roots sources and country and rockabilly and blues and all this stuff, you know, um, what was your, uh, did, I mean, when you heard that sort of radio static that you alluded to, did that sound like the sort of thing that kind of perked your ears up? That's sort of where your taste aligned naturally, it sounds like? Um, in a way. I was, uh, I, I sort of had to go to school a little bit. Like, so my, my, my real, my avatar through this, at the least the initial stages, was a guy named uh, Freddie Patterson, who called himself Fast Freddie. So I joined Freddie's band called the Precision, the Precisions with an extra E. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of that was like Jump Blues, um, Central Avenue, kind of the Percy Mayfield song, but you know, like uh, H. Bomb Ferguson and Roy Milton, and uh, you know, like kind of like uh, not very well known to me, at least forties uh, and fifties R and B. Yeah. So that's I was not super aware of that. I was vaguely aware of it and i kind of took a crash course in it with freddie like just he would make me uh cassettes after cassette after cassette of the stuff and i just it was all just intoxicatingly wonderful so i kind of learned quickly yeah uh but it wasn't like i showed up with all those chops ready to go i i, I kind of had to learn it but that was you know growing up in philly that was the premium that you had to be ready to play anything that was like you know, you weren't shit unless you could literally play any kind of music that anybody wanted you to play yeah. with authority and confidence. So um, it wasn't like I had to, I mean, there, there was no real learning curve per se. It was just sort of like, I just had to, you know, understand what the history, but that was fun. Yeah. <laughs> it was, that was a fun assignment. Um, and then, so my way into that stuff was really more through the, like the blues guys. So that's how, you know, I became friends with the, the Alvin brothers before I was, you know, well before I was in the band, we would just, you know, they would have parties. We would just get a, you know, a case of beer and go to their house and, you know, literally listen to records until dawn. It was, that was a very normal occurrence back then. Um, and then I got asked to join the band, you know, after the, they, they had put out the Rolling Rock record and the and the, the first Blasters record, and then as they were making record number two, they had they had gotten Lee Allen to join them, and then they asked me to join them. So yeah. that's kind of where I came in. But um, so, but as far as like the, the the punk stuff, it was I mean that was one of the coolest things about that scene. It was that you know it's L.A. punk scene. You you know you have a mental picture of like Black Flag and the Circle Jerks or whatever, but it was very broad minded. I mean, it really wasn't unusual to have you know you know, hardcore punk band and the blasters and or, you know, a rockabilly band and or, you know, it was not like, it was just like, 
all this experimentation going on yeah um all the time it wasn't like you know you had to it was no orthodoxy everybody's minds were wide open you know i often say like you know like i everybody's identities were like nobody everybody got to pick their own name like you didn't have to be steve Berlin. i could have made you know called myself you know mega delta whatever you know yeah. like, <laughs> it didn't matter you know like and those and it was just understood that that's who does you know you never i you know i told the story the other day that I've known John Doe for the better part of 50 years, and I just learned his last name within the last year and a half. <laughs> he was just always John? John Doe, yeah. I just, yeah. John, like, you know, I never, I, the only, I, and the only way I knew, because I had to put him on a guest list. Yeah. <laughs> so, Man. Um, but it was like, it was kind of, it was super fun and super wide open and lots of just amazing music going on all over the place. And I should, I shouldn't leave the story without saying, I also, so through Freddie, I also got, noticed and joined the band of a guy named top jimmy who was really sort of instrumental in my whatever career i guess uh so he had a gig every monday night at this shithole called the cafe de grand which was this terrible terrible but wonderful club on the corner of uh, selma and ivar in hollywood like right dead center of hollywood and everybody it was anybody in that scene would come there like monday night that's like you automatically were going to top jimmy show because you never know you know, one night it'd be John Doe, next night it'd be, next Monday it'd be David Lee Roth or Eddie Van Halen or, you know, some other ridiculously talented. That's nuts, I mean, yeah. It was, just, it, was, it was the place to be, and I was in that band, and so that kind of gave me a lot of street cred as well, because, you know, any, anybody, like everybody at one point or another was in Top Jimmy's band, so if you're in Top Jimmy's band, you know, you're kind of like a made man, more or less. Yeah, that's awesome. So you joined officially. You joined Los Lobos in 1984, but you you played on and a time to dance before that, 83, and uh, and co-produced it with and, uh, and, and co-produced yeah. it, right? So, yeah. so what did you think uh, when you first when you first heard him? You said you met him through the Blasters. Was did you just share a, a bill or something like that? Yeah, yeah. That, well, I, I I saw them open for the for Public Image, the infamous Public Image show. But at that point, this would have been like 79, yeah. maybe, 78. I still, I, I can't quite pinpoint the day. At that point, they were still just doing the folkloric music. So it wasn't like I saw a band playing Mexican and Latin folkloric music and thought, oh, there's my, that's where I'll be for the next 50 years. Yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but then like, uh, so what, I guess it'd be like a year, year and a half later, uh, the Blasters are headlining a, a Five Nights at the Whiskey. And every night there was a new opening act, and one I think it was Thursday or Friday was Los Lobos, and that's the band. You know that by that point they had plugged in. It was all electric, playing you know kind of this weird amalgam of Latin and R and B, and you know stuff that sounded like Cajun music. So it was right in my right in my wheelhouse. Um, and then they said, you know, hey, there's there's actually sax parts on some of these songs if you want to come like learn them and and play with us. So. It started, you know, quite innocently like that, and I, you know, I, I went to a rehearsal that they, they used to have this a friend of theirs, still still a friend of theirs, this guy named Gary Banyas, and they rehearsed in his garage. And he actually, I saw him the other day, oddly enough, and he said that he has the tape of the first, like every rehearsal, like he actually had a big reel to reel. Wow! And he had the tape of me walking in and saying, "Hey, you know, like just that first day," which I, I he said he's going to digitize it for me so I could hear it, but. There is a historical document of that first moment where I walk in there and start playing with them. 
How cool. How, how, how did it feel when you started playing with them? Was it pretty much immediately it was like, yeah, this feels good. This works. Yeah, it did, as a matter of fact. I mean, it was obviously a little bit exotic because I didn't, you know, I knew exactly zero about anything in Latin <laughs> music. I mean, I had literally no, no nothing. I mean, I'm vaguely aware of some salsa stuff, but not, it wasn't, you know, at that point I was really getting, uh, you know, still in my crash course of, of R&B and jump blues and, you know, the saxophone tradition in that kind of music. So it was really, you know, that's kind of where I was in that moment. But, you know, again, like growing up in Philly, like I kind of, my ears were open and my mind was open and I, you know, yeah. I picked up on it and, you know, kind of learned as much as I could, as fast as I could. And, you know, I kind of got up to speed, you know, in not a lot of time. I mean, it took me it's a lot of practicing because the parts are very, pretty intricate. But once, you know, once I figured out what, what it was supposed to sound like, it, it got a lot easier. Yeah, that's funny too. And I'm sure that you're, I mean, I, I, I trust that you're right when you say that they're intricate parts. The, one, of the, the, one of those defining signature sonic qualities of Los Lobos is that it rarely sounds labored over or, or showy <laughs> in that way. But, you know, it takes a lot of work to sound that, to sound that effortless, I imagine. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess, yeah, it could, yeah, that's true. Well, you know, the, the other uh, somewhat untold part of the Los Lobos story is that, you know, the prior to that night where I met him for real at the, at the whiskey, they had spent the better part of seven or eight years playing like five, six nights a week yeah. in East LA, in and around East LA. So a lot of that effortless effortlessness yeah. came from, you know, literally just night after night after night after night of playing that stuff. Just getting just in, grinding, just grinding and getting it. So it's like, it, it became second nature. Even, even now I'm amazed, like when we do the folkloric stuff, like we'll bust that stuff out every once in a while. And, you know, after not having touched it for sometimes a year or two, and they're, the guys just like, they just pick it up and go. I'm just like, man, yeah. how in the world? I mean, because that stuff, the folkloric stuff actually is intricate. Like the stuff that I play, you know, the Norteño stuff is, by and large, it's pattern. You know, it's just like melodies. Once It's a lot of arpeggios. It's a lot of like, the parts are intricate and sure. by no means simple. But again, like once you sort of figure out like what, there's like a thing to it. There's like a melody that, yep. that there's like a part, an, an idea that kind of goes through all of the sax parts, at least that once you get your head around, it's like, okay, well that's that thing. It's like Irish music. Like, you know, once you get your head around like the, the twists and turns, it's not as complicated. It's, right. You just kind of hear where it's going. But the folkloric stuff, which I normally don't play on because it's largely string music. That stuff is like crazy complicated. Right. Right. You know, so you were obviously you were you were deep in this scene. You were hanging out with everybody. Something that came into my mind as I was getting ready for this interview was you played with the plugs, and um, like everybody who is a Dylan fan, uh, I'm obsessed with that performance where they're backing him up on Letterman. Uh, wow, I totally forgot about that. <laughs> Do you? I'll have, to that I'll have to find that. Uh, that was, you know, the plugs, they were my favorite band yeah. before I joined them. And that, like, I loved X, I loved the Blasters, but the early, like the, the three-piece plugs, the first plugs, were the, the most, how, like, again, like, it's not a, like a, it, it, it's like the three horses are like photo finish, the Blasters, X, and plugs. Of course. The plugs were like, they were just so exciting. And, you know, just the three-piece part of it, it was like, you know, they were like punk rock cream, more or less. Yeah, and Charlie, the drummer, was so dynamic. I mean, 
there weren't, it's like in that scene, there weren't like, nobody was really a, a virtuoso musician. Like the ideas were genius. Like John Doe, Dixine, Billy Zoom, certainly, I mean, he might be a genius. But there wasn't like, it, there was certainly no, there was no premium placed on virtuosity, technical virtuosity. Yeah. It wasn't about that. Like nobody, there was no Joe Satriani, there was no, you know, whatever, you know, who's the guy in Fish? You can hear the, Trey Anastasio. Yeah, there was no like guitar hero anything. It was, I, it, frankly, it was as far the opposite direction as you could possibly go. Right. But within that milieu, Charlie Charlie Quintana was a fucking genius. I like, I was a big jazz fan, you know, in my teens, like before I moved to LA. And he reminded me of Tony Williams, who was my favorite drummer. Yeah. In the world. Yeah. He just had like so dynamic and so exciting and just like, couldn't take your eyes off him. And so that, whenever I got to see the plugs, it would just be like, oh my God, this is unbelievable. And then I joined the band and I will be honest, like the, the it started to change. Like, yeah. I wish, I, you know, I, the fan version of me would wish that the guy, the, the band member of me didn't join the band, yeah. but actually, <laughs> the, but the band was changing. Like, the, like sure. Tito's idea was, was a different thing. And then he got, um, the so not long after I joined, he got um, Gustavo uh, Santuala, who's now very you know he wins the the the, the scoring Oscar literally every year. Uh, he so he had just arrived from Argentina along with his his partner a guy named Anibal, who still is is his partner. He's like the engineer and all that stuff. Hmm. So these you know more virtuosos show up, and we make that second record, and it's a totally different band. I mean, it's not it's not about. It's not the three piece. It's not the power trio thing anymore. It's more about textures and stuff like that. And it had that band actually like it wasn't built to last. You know, it was you know Gustavo was a very very like he you know you could tell he was not going to be a a keyboard player in a punk rock band. I mean, he had right experience. You know, so, yeah. Uh, so it wasn't built to last, but it sure was fun while it was there. And but uh, I think I, I kind of digress there. But yeah, in the early days, like you know, the, and, but. I, you know, listen, I would go see the plugs, X, Blasters, Wall of Voodoo, Weirdos, like any opportunity that they were playing, I was going to go because they were, it was all just so exciting and yeah. fun and brand new. And, you know, none of this shit had ever really existed before. So it was like every time you see them, it'd be like, you know, something resembling an epiphany. Like, oh, my God, this is like a new song. It's unbelievable. Like, yeah, you know, it was pretty great. Re- reading uh, like a like an oral history or a behind the scenes thing about that particular performance where Dylan asked them to join him on Letterman, they mentioned that that Dylan that they would see him at some of these shows, some of the shows you're describing that he would show up. Yeah. Do you ever remember Dylan being in in the room? I think yes. I think he was at vaguely. You know, he wasn't, you know, yeah. he wasn't like, I'm you sure. know, he wouldn't announce himself. I'm sure he didn't know? show up and say, hey, everybody, I'm no, Bob I, Dylan. I remember, <laughs> yeah, I remember hearing that he would come, like, he would lurk. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's kind of, you know, it's funny, I'll, I'll tell you a, a brief story. So we played at, you know, the Grammy event that he spoke at a couple of years ago? Is that the one, that? The, the Music Cares thing, where he, he kind of yeah, went on a, music he, yeah. he kind of talked so, shit about the recently deceased Tom yeah. T. Tom T. Hall, yeah. uh, unfortunately. Yeah, but so, <laughs> so we're, you know, we got asked by Dylan's manager, who's a good friend of mine, and I like, he's a really good friend of mine. So like, you know, we said, yes, absolutely. Not, a, you know, of course. And so, but I said, is, is Bob going to come? And he said, 
I don't know. I said, come <laughs> on, just, you know, give me a fucking break, man. I'm not, I'm not, you know, this is not MTV. You know, I'm not going to blab. You know, just tell me. He goes, I don't know. I, I just, he goes, I don't know. Bob does what Bob wants to do. Huh. Okay. Wow. So it was a day of rehearsal in the venue before the actual event. So everybody ran through their song. And uh, so we did our song. And I think, who was it? I forget. Was it Jackson? I think it was Jackson Brown. Like, we did our song, and I'm just, like, hanging out, and I'm talking to Jeff, and his phone rings. And he goes, yep, uh-huh, oh, okay. <laughs> and, of course, it was Bob. So we, it's the Shrine Auditorium, if I remember right. It was, like, the, this big, you know, it's, like, 12,000 seat, and there's nobody in the place but the but the custodial staff and the crews. But Bob was in the building, and he told he didn't like Jackson's version of his song. Uh. <laughs> like, again, like... Fucking Jeff wouldn't tell me that Bob was even going to come, but wow. he's actually hanging out at the rehearsals, listening to everybody do their thing, and he told Jeff to tell Jackson to, to stop doing whatever he was doing. Man, that's it's wild. Just, it's just fucking, you know, like, he's Bob. It's just like, man, it's hard to be that guy this, this day and age where everybody's got a camera and a phone. You know, it's like, Some- how do you do shit? In, how do you be Bob Dylan and be invisible? Like somehow he yeah. he somehow he manages in this weird way. And even when you see photos of him out and about, you know, it still right. seems like it doesn't. It's not real. You know, there's some like no Bob Dylan's not a normal dude who goes to the grocery store or whatever. <laughs> I doubt it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Who knows? You know, he might be. You wouldn't. How would you know? <laughs> uh, it just cracked me up. That's amazing. That's amazing. Uh. Steve, I wonder how annoyed uh, or sick you get of people asking you a- about Paul Simon. Is is does Paul is it is it is it boring talking about that situation at this point for you? Listen, you know, I've had I've been I, I consider myself, and I'm not. This is not exaggerated. I am blessed. I've been able to make a living. Yeah, I haven't had a, a real job since 1970, whatever. Yeah, uh, I get to do what I want to do. I get to play with people I, I, I love playing with. Yeah, nobody's. Nobody effectively says you can't do this, you can't do that. It's literally impossible to be in this business as long as I have without having a Paul Simon experience. <laughs> so, I, you know what I mean? It's like you can't, like you know, yeah. compared to like Helen Wolf or, or you know, Bo Diddley. Like you know, that's right. There, there are assholes. This may come as a as a newsflash, but there are some really, really titanic assholes in the music business. Go figure. Yeah, and he, he certainly would would characterize as one of those. Now. Did, he didn't actually steal anything. He just didn't share the thing that. Well, actually, he did steal. Never mind. That, uh, I was going to go somewhere else with that, but yeah, he did steal. But uh, you know, I'll, I don't mind. I'll talk about it. I, I, I'm just not going to lie about it because uh, I have no reason to lie. And the only thing that I that bugs me is when it sounds like I'm obsessed about it. Like I think about it. The f- I never fucking think about it unless somebody asks me, and then I tell them the truth. But it's not like I wake up and I go, oh, "That fucking bull Simon ripped me up." It's like right. It just you know, shit happens. People, you know, are assholes. Some some people are assholes, and certainly I'm not the only person that thinks Paul Simon is an asshole or a thief. Right? I mean, you know, read any of the books. You know, like there's the whole there's a line of people at the door. You know, with the similar stories, right? Yeah. So, no, absolutely. I just wonder. You know, it's this thing where it's like you have always painted the the picture in interviews. You know, when asked about it. You know, when when some. Uh, journalist like myself brings it up or whatever <laughs> um I'll tell you, you know i'll tell the story i mean it's not, there's not a lot of nuance to it i mean we we went to record with him and 
you know, we thought he had a song that he wanted us to play, and he just wanted to like literally observe us. I think like he he brought nothing. Like that was the the, the, the most shocking part of it to me was that he brought nothing. He was like we were like performing for him. That's like he was not in the room. Yeah, he was not in the in like if I was getting a band to do something for me, I would participate, right? I'd be like, okay, well, here's the idea, or you know, like, what do you think about like you know that song that you do? Like you know, can we do something? You know what I mean? Like I'd have a, a big clue. Zero, nothing. Like not brought nothing. Not a, a chord change. Not a not a beat. Not a nothing. Didn't even have so a conversation like, with you guys about like here's my thoughts about what this album is or anything well, like that. He said so when we when when we entered the studio, the concept of the record was not what it turned into at all. It was Paul around the world. Mm. So like he had done some stuff in South Africa. He had done some stuff in Louisiana with people that I knew. There was a saxophone player down there named John Hart who was one of my you know one of my heroes I love. <clears throat> and so he had done a like he had done a bunch of work in these places and the vague idea of the record <clears throat> at that point was more like Paul, you know, like the, the Rick Steves, yeah, you know, travelogue of Paul right. hanging out and jamming with people. Um, so we were just like one thing of that. Now, I don't know how he dealt with them, anybody else but us, but, you know, he said, well, I just thought we would jam and we're like, um, well, you know, here's the dark secret with Los Lobos in that era is that you know, Louis would play drums on stage, but never on record. He's just not a studio guy. He'd be the first to say, "Yeah." Uh, you know, he just doesn't have. You know, he could execute the, the the things that we ask him to do, but you know, by and large, he's you know the just like jamming. Dave would play drums. Yeah, because Dave's a great drummer, but we need Dave to play guitar because at that point, you know, Louis wasn't playing guitar, so that got really sticky very quickly because Louis was like really, really like not in his element. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and again, like Paul's in the studio, like in the control room with, uh, Roy Halley, who was another guy that, I mean, I had the highest respect for both of those guys. I mean, I thought those records were exquisite. You know, I thought, I still think Paul's an unbelievable songwriter, although I have to question. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like the boxer, you know, like all those songs are just, they're so, they're exquisite. I was, I was a fan. So, yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, so we were just like, you know, we were so like on the wrong foot, like right from the beginning. And, you know, his personality on a good day is just, you know, he's not a warm fellow, you know, he's just like this very sort of dry you know, doesn't seem to have any sense of humor whatsoever. And so we were just like, you know, we would just be like flopping around out there and he'd go like, nope. Ah, oh, jeez. And then like, you know, 20 minutes later, nope. Ugh. Like, hey, hey. So, you know, so basically, you know, after enough of that, we started playing this, this song that we had started working on that didn't have lyrics or melody, but it was just like a groove. And he goes, what's that? So it's one of our songs. He goes, have you recorded it yet? And I was, no, we're just, you know, it's just an idea. Like, can we use that? Like anything, like, please take the, you know, like anything to get out of this room. Of course. Uh, and that's how it happened. So we just played the, you know, we just ran it down um, and that was enough. And then, uh, then we left. But, you know, we thought, you know, the, 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 we thought, okay, well, that's one of our songs. So, you know, certainly with his zero input, there's no way that, you know, we didn't think there was any chance of 
of you know not sharing the songwriting credit for it of course and i have to you know, i hasten to point out that at the time that we did it like he was at a low ebb like we were you know we had won a grammy rolling stone band of the year we were riding you know this is pre la bamba but still in our little world we were you know well up the food chain and paul was coming off you know a couple of disasters he had a, a broadway play that closed overnight that he had worked on for a year because i know because i had a friend that worked on it. yeah um huh. And an album that had done, like he had, he was, you know, the record prior had done almost nothing. So it wasn't like, you know, we, what we did was for a guy who was going to sell 12 million records, whatever he ended up selling. It was more like, you know, we were sure. doing him and our, our label president, who we loved, Lenny Warker, a favor because Lenny had done so much for us. We were like, okay, well, you know, our feeling was whatever Lenny wants, we'll do just because that, that was our relationship with him. Um, so, you know, like I said, just, Music business is a weird place. Sometimes weird shit happens, so that thing happened. But yeah, yeah we never got, we, you know, we got credit on the record, but not for writing it. No, just chagrin, which, you know, would have financially would have probably made things brighter in that era, but whatever. Of course, of yeah. course. And, and so all these years later, despite the fact that this is a fairly well known story and a fairly well known thing, you still have never had a, a situation where he's tried to make it right in some fashion. His thing was has always been confrontational. Like in the month, like when we reached out to him when the record first came out, and it said "Words and Music" by Paul Simon. We we thought it was a typo. We mm -hmm. said, "Hey, you know, you know, this is you gotta you'll, you'll fix this on the next run, right?" Right, because at the very then, least, it's a code. At the very least, it's like him. He he did the words. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, we had nothing to do with the lyrics, nor would we ever claim to. I mean, sure. that's a, you know a thousand percent him. But you know, yeah, if nothing else, like a you know, even though he had. Again, he has as much to do with the writing of that music as you did. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, yeah, I mean, that would have been something. But, you know, and it, I think what when asked about it in the stuff that I've read, it's, you know, he, he paints a very different picture. Like, you know, it was his idea and that, you know, we did something. But, you know, you tell me, you listen to that song. Does that sound, does it sound like a Los Lobos song or does it sound like a Paul Simon song? No, that's... It sounds exactly like, I mean, one of the reasons why it didn't turn into a song, because frankly, it... It wasn't very good. <laughs> perfectly honest, it was. It was kind of a groove that I felt. I, you know, it, it wasn't like, oh, this is going to be. You know, when we were doing it, it sounded like two or three other songs of ours, which is why it was, it was in the yeah in the, the B list pile because it didn't have an identity. Like it, it was just like, well, you know, we, we had. I can't think of the songs now, but there's like two or three songs that sound very, very, very similar to that. So it was like, all right, well, let's just you know table this one for the time being. Well. As a session guy and someone who's produced a lot of records, you know, uh, you've been involved in everything from records by Faith No More to the Go Go's and Cheryl Crow and Deer Tick, all these, you know, all over the map. Yep. That sounds like a truly demoralizing and awful session with Paul Simon. What? Oh, it's terrible. What? Yeah. What makes for a good session? What are the ingredients that you feel like got to be in place before you go into a studio? and know that it's going to work and feel right. Well, I would hasten to point out that you never know before you go in the studio. Mm, yeah. You, you literally, you have, you can do everything possible. You could have the best players in the world and a great idea and a great singer and a great song. And it could go literally into the toilet before you can blink. Sure. And you could go into a session with nothing but question marks 
not knowing what the fuck's going to happen, having, you know, like lots and lots of personal drama and weirdness and broken equipment and everything else could go wrong. And you get a hit song out of it. Of so course. There's nothing. In, that's one of the, the most amazing parts of, you know, making music for a living is you never fucking know. Ta- and yeah. Talk about more often than not, more often than not, it's the, it's the un- improbable circumstance that becomes the thing. And the thing that you literally you line everything up and you, treated like a fucking guerrilla operation and you know you have it timed down to the nanosecond and those are the ones that generally go sideways fast because you can't corral this thing like you you just have to let it happen yeah so that's number one uh number two you just have to be in a room with people who can think and not necessarily be virtuosos but people who who are in touch with their ideas who can who when they have an idea they can execute or and or describe the idea enough so that other people in the room could execute it. Sure, sure. Uh, and then it's just a, a, literally a willingness to let whatever happen happen. And that's something that I had to learn the hard way. A lot of times I tried to like make things happen or have a preconceived idea of what's supposed to happen, and that horse will buck you off. Yeah, as, uh, very quickly and usually very embarrassingly sure 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 <laughs> you know so it's uh, it's really about uh it's kind of about just letting the moment be and and being ready to turn on a moment's notice and just like you know a lot of times the best ideas is or the, the thing that turns into the coolest thing ever is the thing that the guy is playing before he thinks the, the recording is starting right so like he's just you know like he's just noodling and it'd be like some wait what's that Oh, I'm just warming up. Like, no, what's that? The thing you just did. What is that? Like, and that becomes the thing. And it's just like, well, wait a minute, we're going to do this. No, let's do that. That, that idea. That's, that's cooler. Yeah. So, there's a lot of that. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. All right. So here's a brief story about that. Like what you just described. So, uh, the neighborhood record, uh, post La Bamba, post, uh, Pistola. So we had one, you know, big success, Won a Grammy. Yeah. Uh, making a record, making it, making the follow up record post the really the official rock record post La Bamba. And uh, we, so the guy that had engineered and mixed uh, Will the Wolf Survive and the record prior, you know, at that point we had sort of lost faith, I guess. Well, this is a whole thing I don't want to get to, but sure. T Bone's not under the picture. Yeah, let's just cut that last line out. Yeah. T Bone's out of the picture. And we decided we're going to let this the engineer, Larry Hirsch, produce it. Yeah. You know, like I wasn't at that point, like, you know, like I was, I'd been in the band for seven years. Nobody listened to a fucking thing I said. They still don't listen to a fucking thing I said. <laughs> so there's no point in claiming, you know, like trying to produce anymore. So it's like they'd seen me drunk and at my worst too many times to, to take anything that I said as, you know, I sh- they should do this in the recording studio, which was fine by me because frankly, you know, by that point, producing Los Lobos was not fun. It was like, you know, you need someone to actually like stay there and do all the, you know, like do just, yeah. you know, it was not, it's not like it wasn't that fun. I'm, I know what again, you mean. I've had too much coffee, but it was, <laughs> it was more helpful to have somebody outside the band do it than somebody inside the band. All right. So there's a song that we still do called just a man that, um, and this was, so we cut it a number of times and Larry thought, that we were not good enough musicians to play the song. Hmm. So Larry hires Booker T, Duck Dunn, and Jim Keltner to play that song on our Los Lobos record. Oof. 
it, we're like, I, well, you know, I mean, you couldn't argue with the band, right? I mean, pretty good, great, pretty fucking good. band, and you know, it was a mildly delicate song, and I didn't really, to be honest, the, the version that we had, it was good, not great, but on paper, that sounds like okay. Well, you get that band together, what could go wrong? What could go wrong? So they get together. And uh, we're, I'm, you know, we're all there. Like it was kind of like we got, you know, I kind of felt like uh, like the Archies or like uh, the Monkeys, you know, like watching some other guys play your music for you. But yeah, you know, with that, the band with the provenance like that, like who, uh, what, you know, could I play Booker T's part? Fuck no, you know, like so. All right, so let's let's see what happens. So it was late at night, if I recall, like for whatever reason, it started late, and they get a take, and it's good. Not great, but it's like, you know, Booker sounds like Booker. Jim Keltner sounds like Jim Keltner. It's like, oh, okay, maybe this, that, this is a cool idea. This, this could work. Take two. Good, not transcendent. Like, with you know, like, okay, we're, we're like this close. It's got to, you know, take three. A little further for, you know, just like oh, things no. are starting to get a little, little <laughs> Getting a little leaky, worse as it goes. A little leaky. And just like I'm standing there and it's like, you know, the expression slow motion car wreck was literally like, you know, 400 frames a minute car wreck. It just got worse and worse and worse. And in that era, Jim was uh, Jim was super into electronic drum sounds. So there'd be like this very sort of like, you know, like hardcore Freddie King uh, blues thing, and then Jim would go like there'd be like this horrible electronic drum, yeah. And you know we're going for a live take, so it wasn't like you know it's not like we could edit that out. It was just like it was shit like that. It'd just be like like one thing after another after another. And and Larry, I mean, he'll be the first to tell you he was like the world's most most nervous, uptight. Like he like he thought that his entire career rested on on every single second of this record. Like he was right. so uptight about so over the top obsessed about every second of music on this record. Yeah. <clears throat> Frankly, it became a really, it was a hard record to make because he couldn't like what I said before about letting go and letting the moment happen. He was having a tough time. Every, like, literally like, like vibrating, like just like, like strangling every second of music. And, you know, I, I remember walking out of there at like four in the morning on, after like take 30 because he couldn't like like he couldn't allow that it, it had failed. And yeah. he kept those guys there like four or five. Like and I was just like, it just got worse and worse and worse and worse. And finally, I was just like, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to go to go home, go to bed. So and then we ended up using our, our version like <laughs> that just threw it away. Like we ended up using the version that that he thought wasn't good enough. So was good enough. as as you said, though, on paper, hard to imagine anything better than that. And yet, hard to imagine, you know, so it goes on. The magic of music that you never fucking know anything. Yeah. Who are some of the you've worked with a lot of producers, obviously. Um, who are some of the people who, who you felt helped you learn how to how to to get to that place where you where you're li- where you're listening for like the spontaneous moments and the little things that don't you know sound that add up to a, a much bigger whole. Well, Mitchell Froome certainly mm. you know like that like the, that like he is the best producer by far that I've ever worked with. Yeah. Um, but then it's not even there's there's no second place. It's like he is a genius. He remains a genius. You know, the way his mind works is like, uh, you know, I, I aspire to that kind of clarity of thought 
uh, on a daily basis. Uh, but you know, he's just, he's unique. And Chad, I mean, the two of them are just like the two headed monster. Yeah. Yeah. But he, uh, yeah, I think, uh, I mean, certainly the Kiko experience was a hundred percent just letting shit happen. Like we never knew, like we didn't really know the songs. Um, and we just let them, let them unfold in front of us and really didn't try to like, you know, the, the sound of that record to me was the sound of us kind of searching for something. Like, I don't like none of the, like now it sounds like we knew what we were doing. Yeah. But I remember just like, you know, we wouldn't, we would actually purposefully not learn the chord changes and purposefully not really learn the songs. So there's like all these like kind of weird left turns going on, like mistakes. Yeah. But with Chad involved, like things that, you know, that sounded like in the, in the room, like a mistake, he would turn them into like, Oh no, that's the, <laughs> he would turn them up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that, you know, I mean, that was, I think was an object lesson for all of us, really, you know, everybody in the band, like how, how to make a record with us, like just not, you know, you can't try to control anything. You just got to let shit happen. Yeah. That's, that's beautiful. One of the uh, other things that I listened to to get ready for our talk. Um, and then, uh, we'll wrap up soon. I know you got a, a day ahead of you, but, um, I listened to this new Ten Commandments record that you did with oh, yeah. with, uh, wow. with Scott uh, Amendola and, and and Stephen uh, is it, is it Drozd Drozd yeah. Drozd yeah uh, from the Flaming Lips obviously that's this is a this is a wild sounding record uh, it is. when did that when is. did when did this come together this uh, sound a, a a new soundtrack for the Cecil B DeMille Ten Commandments so the yeah. listener knows what we're talking about that's that's so cool that you dug that out um, so that was a thing that. Um, we all have this mutual friend, a guy named um, David Katz Nelson, who was, uh, he was a VP or something, I don't know what his official title. He was at Warner Brothers when we were there, and uh, obviously the Flaming Lips, you know, they've been there longer than we have. Yeah. Uh, so he was like kind of our product manager slash confidant slash um, all-around cool guy that didn't play any corporate bullshit games, and like you could always get unvarnished truth whether it was what you wanted to hear or not sure from um so he left he left warner's ages and ages ago and started his own label that does um he does uh, interesting reissues and he's also um really in touch with his faith he's a um he's not an orthodox jew but he's like you know he does he has like a, a side thing where he puts out historically significant jewish records yeah um so through him uh, he's also the CEO of a organization called Reboot, which is more or less a, an organization um, to basically bring Jews back into like a secular version of Judaism, like a, a version of Judaism that makes sense and sort of talks to the modern world. It isn't like backward looking, but forward looking and how to like basically, you know, a Jewish identity in a world that that is, you know, very, very complex um, and it's, I'm part of the organization too. Now it's, it's fantastic. They do really cool shit. So one of the things, there's not a lot of joyous Jewish holidays. I don't know if you noticed, but you know, a lot of them are kind of all about misery and, and the horrible shit that happened. Sure. But there's one, there's one joyous holiday called Shavua, which is basically the day that the, the 10 commandments came down from, from God. And the, the idea of that night is you're supposed to stay up all night and party and, and have a ball and, you know, drink till dawn, basically. It's like, you know, that was a joyous day. There's no, nothing unpleasant about it. So last year in June, they, you know, everybody's locked down and, you know, they 
David had the idea of having an all-night uh, party, uh, you know, Zoom style or whatever. And so he reached out to me of like, what do you think about like doing a score for um, a movie uh, as part of this thing? And I was like, you know, I mean, that like talk about a perfect thing to do under pandemic. Like, yeah, fuck that, man, that sounds like a ball. So we uh, we looked around and we found so that the thing that we actually scored was the first the the, the actual Ten Commandments of Cecil B. DeMille was it has that historic part. And then it, it goes to modern day, which was 1920, you know, pre-sound uh, black and white. But this was the the first 45 minutes of the movie was the, the fairly authentic, you know, by the Bible yeah. telling of the Ten Commandments. So it was, it was just like perfect. It was kind of episodic the way that it, it unfolded. Um, so we thought about like who we would get like where do we start he said well you know i'm really good friends with steven Drost. like oh my god that'd be amazing and uh, i'm not sure how we brought scott like i had done some stuff with scott um some live shows with him so i think he was like in the front of my mind so it just started with the three of us and this idea of like okay well you know what do you want to do so i had um so you know like I don't think Steven had done many soundtracks at that point, but I have done, you know, like obviously we did the Bamba, but I had done a couple of soundtracks. So I sort of applied this template that I have when I do soundtracks, where you, you sort of identify the characters and then you sort of write thematic. You have like every character has the theme. So like every, like there's usually two or three or four, hopefully no more protagonists. And every time one of those people is on the screen, thematically the mu- music somehow or suggests right. that's their theme. So basically I just kind of broke the whole movie down into these thematic elements and then, you know, talked to Scott and Steven, everybody's, you know, like said, yeah, let's do it. And then we just sort of divided, like everybody sort of had a scene. Like, you know, I came up with a scene, Steve, like, and we, and it was this wonderful kind of just amazing back and forth and throwing the ideas around and, you know, Steven being, fucking genius you know like everything that he sent was unbelievable and it was just we we literally had a ball it was just so much fun and so gratifying and i think the music is great um we actually did another one that is not out yet um is the 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 golem you know that that story i do i know i know the story the story of the 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 creation where you you you, Yeah. yeah so we did uh so on that one we did it's um we it's that that one's gonna be really cool i'm not i think it's gonna come out uh soon september october oh cool and so that one we uh, we didn't do the whole movie we just did the last third of it so there's six or seven other composers and everybody did sort of the same idea but like different composers did each sequence yeah and then the three of us did uh did the last uh, the, the end of the movie very similarly has you know a lot of the same flavor it's it sounds amazing and then we're going to do another one next year so we're we're you know it's sort of like a team now it's i mean but, it's 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 really cool sounding and it's got such a the the various layers and treatments that you're doing on the sax you know there's so many cool things happening i really enjoyed listening to that one thank you so much yeah i i that was that was really that one kind of got me through those the, that first three months of lockdown like i don't know if, if that <laughs> i didn't have that to like obsess over i'm not really sure what would have happened but that you know when when literally we couldn't go anywhere yeah right it was so much fun to just like go to work on that every day and like you know yeah have a ball. and have it be so uh you know out 
freed up from all the normal rules of like you know probably ninety oh, percent yeah. of what you're you'd be doing musically where you're backing people up and stuff. You don't have to worry about that. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. There was definitely no rules, and you know like the the weirder the better. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then just you know, like just to get like just to work with Stephen was like you know and Scott. I mean I'm not I think, you know Scott was you know another genius, but you know kind of like getting to see how his how his, his mind works and you know like the stuff that like you know sort of a glimpse inside the, the flaming lips planet which yeah you know i'm a big fan it's kind of yeah kind of cool to see uh you know to go peek behind the curtain there yeah it's pretty great no doubt no doubt well uh it's been it's been a real pleasure talking with you steve thank you so much for taking the time oh, and 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 being too, so willing to, to go through the the history and the more recent history it's been really fun thank you for doing it thank you man i really appreciate it It was a lot of fun all right well have a great show tonight and have a great rest of your weekend and uh uh, we'll talk again sometime thanks so much Bye. bye And the sighing and my dying 